this text that we're looking at deals with a strategy that perhaps you and I would not think of ordinarily if we wanted to see God change a county. If we wanted to see God change a town or change a community, we probably wouldn't do what Jesus did here. He comes into a place called Samaria. He is traveling through. It isn't his destination. It is simply a place through which he is trekking. And as he is trekking through Samaria, he's hungry, he's thirsty, his disciples are hungry, and so they go into a town named Sychar. And when they go into the town named Sychar, they go there to get some food, and as they go to get the food, Jesus sits down by a well. While he's sitting there, it's hot, it's in the middle of the day, Jesus is seated at the well. When a woman comes to draw water from the well... She is a Samaritan woman. And what we see in Jesus' encounter with her is that, she, uh, that he must push through three specific barriers just in order to be able to carry on a conversation with this woman. I love what Adrian Rogers said uh, years ago in a sermon. I happened to hear it recently, and he said, the door to opportunity swings on the hinges of opposition. And often that is the case. And certainly it was the case here. Why? Well, there was a gender barrier. Jesus is a rabbi. She is a woman. And rabbis don't talk to women. Men didn't talk to women in that day, so there is barrier number one. It's a gender barrier. Uh, Not only is there a gender barrier, there's a racial barrier. You see, she is a Samaritan. She lived in the northern part of, uh, uh, of Israel. She was a product of what happened in 722 BC when Assyria came storming in and they took the best and the brightest out of uh, Samaria, out of that region of northern Israel, took them out, left um, those not so educated and those not so smart and those not so wise. They left them there, took the best and the brightest out and When they did, the Assyrians settled there. They married uh, Israelites, and the two two together uh, had children, and it became known as Samaria. They were not uh, people who were uh, enjoyed by the Israelites, nor were they enjoyed by uh, uh, their forebears, the Assyrians. They were outcasts. So there's a racial barrier he has to overcome. There's a third barrier. It's a religious one. Uh, Samaritans were very religious people, as we find from this conversation. As a matter of fact, and somewhere along about 400 BC, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and they believed that they should worship in that temple, and so they did while the Jews worshipped in the temple that Solomon had built. 
And she will talk about that in this very passage. She will talk about you worship where you worship, we worship where we worship, and she'll draw that distinction out and make it very, very clear. As a matter of fact, she appears to be a pretty religious Samaritan. She knows her stuff. Uh, Samaritans didn't go past the first five books of the Old Testament. They, uh, they read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would go to Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. And in Deuteronomy 34, 10, where uh, Moses is talked about of being the great prophet, they would say in their theology, which was well articulated by them, that there would not be another prophet after Moses until the Messiah, and they called the Messiah the new Moses. He, he would be the new Moses who would replace the old. And so they had no respect for King David. They had no respect for those prophets that followed. They followed the, uh, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. She was a religious person, but her religion was different than any rabbi coming out of Jerusalem. Uh, She was different. And so Jesus has these three barriers that he must break through in order to even have a conversation with her, and I love what he does. He uh, looks at her and asks her for a drink of water, And she listens to him, and she looks at him, and she says, How could you, uh, being a a Jew, ask of me a Samaritan woman? She touches on two of them in her first response to him. How could you, being a Jew, ask of me a Samaritan woman to give you a drink of water? You know we don't deal with each other. You're on the wrong side of the tracks, do you? you realize where you are. This summer, we had some folks do some ministry work in six different communities around the uh, county. Uh, We had students come in from Ridgecrest, and we had interns that worked with them, and my daughter was working on one of those uh, on the west side of town. And Hannah said when she went into the community, she was trying to find that park there. And when she did, this lady pulled up to her, an older African-American lady, rolled the window down. And she said, honey, do you know where you are? And Hannah said, well, I sure do. And she said, well, people like you don't normally come around places like this. She was saying to Hannah what the Samaritan woman was saying to uh, Jesus Who are you and why are you here? And so in that encounter that Jesus has with her, uh, we discover how he breaks through barriers. And uh, uh, it's instructive for us. Um, We discover that he satisfies uh, thirsty people. Uh, He says, give me a drink and And she talks back to him, and Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The living water uh, literally means a flowing spring. 
And certainly Jesus could have been referring to that rather than uh, a well. Uh, But I think uh, on his mind, certainly not on hers, she didn't read Jeremiah, uh, but Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13, God is talking to a nation that has left him, and God says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, I am the fountain of living waters. Jesus' statement here, as he often does in the book of John, is a clear claim to deity. He said, if you had asked me, I could have given you living water. And the woman said to him, thinking very practically, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. She's right. Would have been at least 100 feet deep. You have nothing to draw water with, she says. And the well is deep. So if you're going to give me water, I'm the one carrying the bucket. I'm the one who can get the rope down and get some water out. And then she pulls the religion card. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Uh, The first way Jesus breaks through these barriers is to satisfy thirsty people. He says, the water that I give him will spring up into a well of eternal life. At first, if you read this, there is the assumption that Jesus is going to do away with the woman's thirst. He's simply going to Make her not thirst anymore. That's not what he's saying. You say, well, Jerry, uh, the scripture says, I will never thirst again, uh, or or she will never thirst again. And if you stop there, you say, okay, thirst is gone, which is a good thing if you're in a hot desert. Uh, But that isn't it. If your body doesn't thirst, you'll die. There's no doubt about that. So thirst is a given. Uh, What Jesus says is, I will give him, uh, I will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus doesn't do away with the woman's thirst. He satisfies it. What is the point? The point is this, is that in this room tonight, are people who have sought to be satisfied with a number of things. There are a number of things we can celebrate as churches, and some churches are satisfied, or the thirst is quenched if they make the bottom line. Just pay the bills. Bring in more money than you spend, and so you're satisfied. Or perhaps it's an attendance number. You reach a certain number of people, and once you get them there, you're satisfied. 
Or maybe you update facilities and people see the updated facilities and, uh, and you're satisfied because of the, the physical appearance or your physical plant at your church. What this woman was apparently satisfied with was a religious system that worked for her. She was able to articulate it, as we'll see in a moment. But what Jesus wanted to do was to reveal in her a thirst that only he could satisfy. It was a thirst that only he could feel. I remember as a graduate school student in Columbia, I remember this clearly, shared it with somebody this past week uh, over lunch that I sat down uh, on my sofa. I had grown up in a Christian home, given my life to Christ when I was 15. Nobody ever took me aside and discipled me and said, Jerry, this is what it means to walk with God. This is what it means to grow. This is what it means to know Christ. And I was crazy religious, went uh, through high school and college. And as a college student away from my family, went to every single, uh, every single weekend, but maybe two, I was in church. But nothing happened to me. And I remember sitting in, the, in my apartment and sitting down on the sofa that evening, that night. And, and then I just lay back on the sofa and I remember looking at the ceiling and I said, God, I don't know who you are and I don't know what you're up to in my life, but I know this, I need you. It was the very next Sunday that I found myself in a church, and I don't know if you've ever been to worship where you think that the pastor tapped your phone the night before. That's how I felt. I thought, how in the world does this guy know the very conversation that I had just last night with a friend of mine on the phone, literally, talking to a friend of mine about the predicament of my life, but he, uh, God knew, and it wasn't even the pastor of this church, it was an associate, and he preached, and when he did, the Holy Spirit began to draw me in in such a powerful way. Something began to happen in me that was something I never could have imagined. I was such a thirsty guy. I was going after a career. I was going after it hard and going after it fast. And I knew what I wanted. And I had taken my, my graduate education and was doing it warp speed twice as fast just to get through, get this job, and pursue this dream I had for my life. When all of a sudden that Sunday morning, God rang my bell and got my attention. And that Sunday night, I was sitting right back there in that service. And every Sunday morning and every Sunday night thereafter, I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough. Oh, my thirst never went away. If anything, it intensified. I was so hungry and so thirsty for more. I had never read my Bible. I remember pulling it out. Never read it for myself. I remember pulling it out and beginning to read. And as I did, the words danced off the pages to me. Had a little notebook about this big. Took it out and began to write in there what God was teaching me day in and day out. How could I see this big difference in my life? It wasn't that my thirst went away. It was that I knew what I was thirsty for. And I knew there was a God who delighted 
in quenching that thirst, who delighted in being me, this stream of water that welled up to eternal life. And here's how I saw it evidenced, by the way. I lived five miles away from the University of South Carolina. That's where I was in school. I lived five miles away from the school. It took me 30 minutes to get there because traffic was so bad. And before all of this happened, I wasn't nice for that 30-minute, five-mile ride. I promise you I wasn't. I was ugly. I, I, I made all kinds of signs, you know, that people shouldn't make out of car windows. I uh, cut people off. I, I just wanted to get to work. I just wanted to do my thing. I was uh, uh, impatient. I was uh, unhappy. All of these characteristics. And all of a sudden, about three weeks into this, I'm smiling, driving down the road, and I kind of catch my reflection in the rearview mirror and wonder who this guy is. All of a sudden, God began to do something inside that worked its way outside. And by the end of that year, I would get up on Sunday mornings, and in my degree program, these people were so liberal, their, their thinking was so radical. But God was changing me, so I'd get up on Sunday morning super early. I'd cook a, a big lunch, poor as dirt, but I spent money on cooking a big lunch, and I promised everybody in my degree, in my master's program, if you come to church with me, you'll get a free home-cooked meal afterwards. And by the end of that year, the entire pew, we sat on the first row in the balcony of this church. The entire pew was all my homeboys wanting something to eat. And they just come to church, and there they would sit knowing, I only knew how to cook two things. And so one week, I mean, I'm in Columbia, but you, you know, can't get McDowell County out of the Columbia boy. And so it was either pinto beans, cornbread, I'm serious, that was one week, or it was chicken casserole and green beans the next. And that's all I knew how to cook. They loved it. And I couldn't wait for them to meet the Jesus who encountered me on that sofa that night when I looked up and said, God, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're up to in my life, but I know that, you need, that I need you. And he met me there. God delights. God delights in satisfying thirsty people. Could I say something to you? Every person you encounter is thirsty. They're seeking something. They're seeking to satisfy themselves with something. And we have exactly what they need. The second way Jesus breaks through those barriers is he exposes what I call thirst-quenching counterfeits. And they exist, do they not? There are these things that we buy into that we think will satisfy our thirst and they don't work. I love what he said to her. It looks like a complete change of subject. He says, go call your husband and come, in, come back. And what does she say? She says, I have no husband. <laughs> that was a good answer. It was true. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Uh-oh. Somebody tapped her phone the night before, right? Somebody rang her bell. The woman said to him, quite wisely, sir, I perceive, I perceive that you're a prophet. 
Now, we read that and we laugh. But if as a Samaritan she means that, guess who she thinks could be on the scene? A new Moses. Is this the new Moses? She has to be thinking that. Sir, I perceive. So you see, she's thought there's not been one since Deuteronomy 34. Is this the new Moses? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she switches gears. I love it. She goes religious. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She knows her stuff. She knows Gerizim. She knows Jerusalem. She knows Solomon and the temple that he built. And she knows the temple they built. And she goes religious on him. I love his answer. He debunks her religious idea. Don't miss this. He goes after, perhaps not in a way that you and I would discover to be the kindest way. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when, when neither on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. She says, he says, for salvation is from the Jews. You see, she only went back to the Abrahamic covenant. He is thinking of the Davidic covenant. That's what he's doing. She only went as far back as Abraham, but God promised David that through his line there would come a king. His name, he would rule and reign over his people forever. She doesn't get that, so he says salvation will come through the Jews. He's making that clear to her. Recently, the folks from Grace here know that a young man just amazingly made it into this county from Gaza. And uh, his house was blown up in, in that mess in Gaza a few months ago. And he was here just for a brief period of time before he went to college up in Virginia. And his name tells his faith. His name is Muhammad. And he's a Muslim. He ended up across the street and came over here to church. First Christian church the kid has ever been to in his life. And he comes in, and he comes up to meet me at the end of the service, and Muhammad and I talk, and when, then we finish up, and that week we have lunch. And then he comes back the next Sunday, and the next week we have lunch, and he says, my mom is really worried. I said, why? And he said that I went back twice to your church. I said, Muhammad, why did you come back? He said, I loved it. I said, Muhammad, I need to ask you a question. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. The Bible teaches that. That's what I preach. Do you believe that Islam is the only way to heaven? And he said, yes, I do. I said, then do you understand the significant distance Theologically, there is between you and me. Yes, I do, he said. But as God would have it, he has no other family in the United States. So he's coming here for Thanksgiving. He's coming here for Christmas. 
He's coming for the next three years. We've got him, all right? And I'm so excited about that. Why? Because of what Jesus said. But the hour is coming. Every time in the book of John, the hour, that phrase is used, it points forward to the cross. Every time. The hour is coming and is now here. It's the already but not yet. The hour is coming, he says, and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What he is saying is that place doesn't matter. Heart does. That's what he's saying. Uh, the hour's coming when it doesn't matter if you're on Jerusalem, which was also on a knoll, or if you're on Mount Gerizim. The hour is coming when I will die on a cross. And three days later, I will be gloriously resurrected from the tomb. And those who worship me, doesn't matter what mountain or valley they're on or valley they're in, they'll worship me in spirit and truth. And then the plot thickens, and what does she say? The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus revealed himself for the very first time in the Gospels to a Samaritan woman and said, I who speak to you am he. So, so how have you guys preached the sermon? Well, crisis pregnancy center. Um, what Bill does with the down and outers. Uh, the prison ministry. We would never read that in a strategy for how to reach an entire town, would we? No. I get all kinds of material on how to grow a church. I've never seen that in it. Right? So what happens? <laughs> Just then his disciples came back. All right. Do you know how they must have felt? The same way you feel when your team's playing ball and, and you get up to leave and they score an amazing touchdown. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar there and went away into town and said to the people, so here we have this sermon, right? This, uh, this town harlot is now preaching. So let's listen in to her sermon. Uh, you wish mine was this short. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's not even a good sermon. Why? Well, uh, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. They all knew what she had done. She's had five husbands. She's living with man number six. She's the town harlot. Everybody knows her. That's why she came to the well at lunchtime. 
It was hot. Women never did that. They always traveled in a company. She traveled alone. Why? She wanted to avoid the crowds. And she comes running back into this town. And she says, come see a man who's told me everything I've done. And they're thinking, duh, we could have done that before you left town. That's easy. And then she ends it with not this is the Christ, but hey, could this be the one, you know? You think this could really be him? It's a question. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town. Who? Uh, All these Samaritans, and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Rabbi, eat. This is fascinating. All right, so Jesus satisfies thirsty people. Jesus exposes thirst-quenching counterfeits this religious jargon, and then he surprises devoted disciples. How does he do it? Well, they say, uh, Rabbi, eat, but he said that the Amai food to eat you don't know about. And so the disciples said to one another, you know, has he been to Chick-fil-A? Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. I grew up farming. The sower and the reaper never rejoice together. Ever. Why? Because if there are two different people in those days, they were, they were hired help. And so they may be uh, uh, migrant workers or itinerant workers. You'd hire sowers and then you'd hire reapers. Why didn't they ever join to rejoice together? Because it takes a long time for a crop to come up. That's why. But because of one woman who was the town harlot, who had become the preaching former prostitute, the sowing and the reaping happened simultaneously. Happened all at the same time. Just like that. Sychar. The people come out of town. And the disciples, they just want to make sure Jesus gets, you know, something to eat. Does it ever strike you that they have the same problem as the woman does? That she thinks she needs this kind of water? When Jesus wants to be in her, a stream welling up to eternal life. And the disciples think they've got to be about details. When Jesus says, you don't need that kind of food. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. You say, Jerry, what? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for people today? Well, the disciples were concerned about lunch and Jesus was concerned about the lost. The disciples went looking for food and Jesus went looking for followers. The disciples, when they get back, they marvel. Jesus is talking to her and they saw the Samaritan woman as a liability and Jesus saw her as a possibility. I love that. How big is this? It's in what Andrew read. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
So it's entirely possible that the young girl who wanders into the crisis pregnancy center, whose life is a mess, when she comes out and declares to others what God has done for her, that half this county could come to Christ. Amen? Amen. Do we believe that? It's entirely possible that the inmate who is notorious becomes the messenger. Isn't that possible? Isn't that how God may work? So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. <laughs> they said to the woman, I love this, I don't know why it's included. <laughs> it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. <laughs> You're a little, you know, two-line two sermon, we're done with that. <laughs> for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, and here's the phrase, the Savior of what? The world. What? The disciples didn't even get that. In their mind at that moment, Jesus was the Savior of whom? The Jews. And the Samaritans looked at him and said, We know you're the Savior of the world. So, Jerry, what do we do with this? Here's what we do. This is no call to start some kind of program, to institute some kind of plan. I ask you, where is the Samaritan woman sitting by the well? I happen to think she works with you. I happen to think she could be a patient of yours. I happen to think that he may be on the same shift you're on. And I'm afraid that in all of our trappings, busyness and activity we might just miss her. I'm afraid that she may not fit our program. I'm afraid that if she walked into most of our churches, we might look at her a little strange and ignore whatever it is she might say. I'm afraid that we might wholly huddle and cheer each other on and go get food for each other when the real food is seeing somebody come out of darkness into light. So here's the challenge. This is what I'd love to see this time next year. Here's what I'd love to see. I'd love to be joined in this time by a bunch of Samaritan women. Would you not? 
maybe rather than all the folks sharing who are leaders, maybe we should just hear from them firsthand. And so Bill, who won't be here, but whoever's leading it, he just comes in and says, well, this is who I am, but I want you to hear firsthand from her or from him. We, we might even could skip the meal. We get so excited to hear those stories, right? Jesus did. Scott's going to come and pray for